Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Normally we uh, go straight into our scripture reading here, but I actually have a little preamble before we do that, and then we'll get to our scripture reading. Let me start by first saying good morning. And if we have not met, my name's Jordan and uh, one of our pastors here, and I'm excited to be with you uh, today. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit longer than I usually do because I've got some things to say today that I'm really excited about. Um, but also I'm gonna talk a little longer because of this little preamble. Uh, last week we started a new fall theme, which we're calling A Big Enough Story. Hopefully you got one of these as you walked in. And we are asking ourselves, what is this story that we find ourselves in? If you were not here last week, we introduced that. We talked about how the story is divided up across five great acts uh, that are acts of a drama. The fifth act is ongoing. We are participants in it. And as a result, we are improv improvising uh, how we get from Pentecost to new creation. And that's our role to play. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. Day. Last week, we leaned heavy on the work of N.T. Wright. Today and next week, I'm going to give somebody else's sermon almost in its entirety, and I never do that. I think in 20 years of doing this, I've done that three times, uh, but every now and then, you come across something that's just so good, and it's so well-crafted, and it's so important that it's just worth sharing, uh, and, and just letting that be enough. And so that's what we're gonna do today, but I wanna say a few words around that before I do that. Today, I'm gonna share a sermon from a guy named Rob Bell. Uh, it's important that I name that because we have a thoughtful church coming from a lot of different backgrounds, and when I say the name Rob Bell, some of you are super excited and you're ready to lean in more than ever. Others of you are like, who is Rob Bell? And others of you have had a draft email waiting for this moment to send it to me to say, that's the last straw, I'm done, uh, that's okay. That's okay, wherever you find yourself in that spectrum, it's okay. Um, if, you don't, if you're in the second category, who is that? Uh, Rob Bell pastored a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a long time, really beautiful special church that I went to a few times. And uh, then he wrote a book on hell and the nature of hell. He asked some questions, it really was mostly questions, but it was very criticized in fundamental uh, backgrounds in particular. And what happened is what often happens when someone is criticized in the public domain Others jump on that criticism, and before you know it, someone has become a byword. Uh, and, and a lot of times what happens is, uh, without even reading the things, uh, there is a fear attached around a name. And so people, soon enough, who had never engaged his work were afraid of his name, and, and in my view, a little bit unfairly maligned. Um, but that's what happens. Uh, so today I'm gonna talk a lot about things that are Rob Bell's words, Rob Bell's thoughts. Uh, and I'm not endorsing every word the man has ever said in his life, but I think one of the things that happens is when we as the church shoot our own, um, we lose some 
some real valuable assets to the kingdom. And I think in this case, uh, I mean, you know, Rob was so criticized that uh, he pretty much has left his work in the church context. And as a result, I think the church lost one of its better storytellers, and that's a shame. And so I also name that because it gives us a chance to talk about two important things, both of which are true in this moment in the American church. So uh, number one is that plagiarism is a real thing in churches. Uh, there's a lot of pastors who take other people's sermons or quotes or notes and just say them as if they were their own, and pastors and theologians deserve to be credited for their work. And so today, I'm saying stuff that is not my original work for the most part. I've certainly adapted, and I have plenty to say that is kind of my own in here also. But, but by and large, the scope and the structure of this is not mine. That's the first thing, plagiarism's real and I wanna give credit where it's due. Number two though, is that pastors are all really tired and mostly a little terrified. And so, because pastors are tired, uh, it's a big task to give a sermon. A sermon is often a small part of the job and you, get, you do it week after week after week and finally you're like, I don't have anything left to say. So what do you do? You look for inspiration somewhere else, then you find it, but you're afraid to name where you found it because the one wrong citation is often all it takes in our church reactive culture right now for someone to be like, I'm out, I'm done with that, right? And so one of the things that I think most pastors labor under, and I don't say this as complaint, I say this as education. I don't know a single pastor who doesn't feel like they could say 99 right things and then they say the one wrong thing and that's the end of the relationship, right? So I just wanna say, let's not be that church. Instead, let's enter into moments where we're like, yeah, great, I love it, or I don't know about that. Well, great, let's talk about it. Let's sit down over a cup of coffee because it gives us a chance to practice two things. Number one, charity, which is it's a matter of time before I say something you disagree with. And uh, if so, let's keep relationship, let's, let's sit down, let's practice forbearance and unity and truth-telling, which are desperately needed things in our world today. And number two, it gives you a chance to practice discernment. Not everything I say is gonna be right. And so, great. Uh, you get to sit with this, and I'll invite you to sit with this today and say, oh, what if that resonates? What if that bears witness? What if that matches what I know of this good story? And uh, we can evaluate without reactivity. Discernment and reactivity almost never go together. So when we find ourselves kind of like, ah, like big reaction, we can sit, we can come back to peace, and we can uh, work with the Holy Spirit. So for my money, what we're gonna do today is one of the most masterful ways of telling the big story I've ever heard, and it's worth sharing with you. I'm gonna share it in two parts this week and next week because Rob talked for over an hour, and I don't wanna subject you all to that. It's a little bit broken up as a result of that, but we'll do our best. So without any further ado, let's get into our scripture reading. I'm gonna invite uh, Jim and Mike, come on up here. Jim is going to read, are you Revelation? You're Revelation. Okay, Mike is going to read from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, some selections from there, and then Jim's going to pick it up and read from us some selections from Revelation 21 and 22. We're reading from Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. 
and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate day from night. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. This is a reading from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. Never again will anything be cursed. The throne of God and the Lamb is at the center. His servants will offer God's service. Worshiping, they'll look on his face, their foreheads mirroring God. Never again will there be any night. No one will need lamplight or sunlight. The shining of God, the master, is all the light anyone needs. And they will rule with him age after age after age. Come, says the spirit and the bride. Whoever hears echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will come, all who will come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. He who testifies to all these things says it again. I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Yes, come, Master Jesus. Amen. The story of God and God's people. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jim and Mike. So we're working to tell this big enough story, a story big enough for every season of life, a story that spans the annals of Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we're working to do that as a way of developing a spiritual theology catechism for our church. How do we answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And not that we have to answer that uniquely, but instead we tap into the history of the church tradition that we're a part of. We, we look to the church fathers and mothers, we look to the scriptures, and we, we wrestle with that question, what does it mean to be a Christian? If you're gonna tell a story, it's good to start at the beginning of the story. And we're gonna see this more next week, but one of the things we tend to do in the American church is not begin the story at the beginning of the story. Uh, we fast forward in the story, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit next week. But we wanna begin at the beginning of the story, 
and we want to end at the end, right? Remember what Stephen Covey famously said? I think it's in Scripture somewhere in the seven habits. That's in between Micah and Jeremiah, the seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, I'm joking. He says, uh, begin with the end in mind, right? And I think there's something there for us to, to think about also. What is the end of this story? How do we begin with the end in mind? And if we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, the best way I know to answer that question is to tell that story. And it spans those five acts. Today, we're going to start in Act 1. We're going to go all the way to the end of Act 5. We'll skip the other acts in the middle, and we'll hit those in future weeks. And uh, as we enter into Act 1, we ask that question, what is the Jesus story? And it's an important question to ask, because if I were to come up to you and say, hey, do you know about the Christian story? These days, you might do well to look back at me and go, which one? right? Because there's a lot of different Jesus stories out there right now. There's a lot of different ways of telling what this story is about and what the purpose of it is and what values it has. And the story has so often been reduced and redacted and unwisely wielded. And to be honest, many people have pulled away from the American church because of lesser versions of the Jesus story than the good story that we are actually given in scripture and because of the ways that the story is often co-opted by those who have their own agendas and purposes for it. And so it's important right now that we put both fresh and ancient words around the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And my hope today is that we might not only hear the story, but reclaim the story, say yeah, this is our story to steward. This is our story to protect and to tell and to share and to participate in and to live into. It's a story worth giving our lives to. And so we start at the beginning, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God speaks a word and there was. God creates what he loves, and he loves what he creates, and he fashions the cosmos, and in the midst of the cosmos, he sets a garden. We're given this image of a garden, and in that garden, God's creation comes alive. God said. So the very first thing we notice is that words have the ability to create worlds. Yeah. Have you ever been going through a season of life, and somebody says that thing to you that you desperately needed someone to say. They speak the word of hope, the better word of truth, the word of honesty, the word of compassion, the word, the word of beauty, and it's like something inside you comes alive again, right? That's mimicking into that eternal impulse that a word can create this whole new world that brings life to something. And so God said, and there was. Genesis 1, first of all, is a poem. It is written with meter, with cadence, with structure. It's, it's, and that's something really important for us to think about as we look at Genesis 1 and 2. Poetry is often operating on a far deeper and more subversive level than a flat reading, right? So one of the things that's happened is we've tried to make Genesis 1 into science, modern science. That, I don't think that's the level it's operating on, right? This is a poem. It's a poem. Why did God find it important? to start the big story with a poem. Of all the different things that he could have done, he starts with this artistic and structured telling 
of creation. There's a rhythm to it, a cadence to it. And God said, and let there be, and there was, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. Scholars have actually demonstrated that there is a time signature to Genesis 1. There's actually a meter to it, and it can follow on this pattern. Each day is treated with the same rhythm at a literary level, except the seventh day, which is doubled. And so the, re- the rhythm goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 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 one, two, three, four, five. I mean, I mean, it's amazing, the structure of Genesis 1. And so right from the start, we see God has set a pace to this creation. And the creation is crafted with a workmanship. It is both deeply artistic and deeply organized. So if you are the person who goes to your sock drawer and has it labeled and every sock perfectly organized. Good, you got that from Genesis 1, right? And if you're the person who goes to your sock door and there is nothing in it, but you have, you know, who knows where the socks are, but it's beautiful looking drawer, piece of furniture, mid-century, you know, it's, it's West Elm all the way. Well, you got that artistic impulse from Genesis 1, right? And so, 24 hours, seven days, a 28-day lunar cadence that happens 12 times a year. There's fall, there's winter, there's spring, there's summer. Four seasons make up a year. Your heart beats, your lungs breathe, the tides crash in and out. I mean, why is all of that true when it could equally be untrue? And there are days where I go, is this all meaningless? Is this all arbitrary? Was any of this really created? Is any of this story real? But why is it true? that creation is as magnificent as it is. And so, God created and there was. Now, let's make some observations about this creation. First of all, creation was not only created, it is creative. It is creative. God has loaded into creation the ability to make more creation. And so if we look into the scripture here, verse 11 of Genesis 1, we get this word in Hebrew, and it is dasha, dasha. God said, let the land sprout, or dasha, with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit, and God saw that it was good. And so the land is sprouting or producing or dashawing, which means it is progressing on its own. You have not only a peach tree, but you have a peach tree that can make fruit, and inside of that fruit is a pit, and inside of that pit is the ability to make a tree that can make fruit, that can have a pit, that can make it. You see what I'm saying? God loaded creation, not as a static, un, like finished project, but as this thing that's going somewhere. It's not only generative, it is dynamic. It is on the move, it is going somewhere. Tomorrow is going to be different than today. A person can unite with another person and overflowing love to create a person who can unite with a person. And, oh, and this is how God's world is structured. In this garden, there is a river. In the river is water of life that feeds into a tree of life that bears fruit that heals, life-giving fruit. And so it's progressing, it's blooming. If you go and leave your yard alone for two months and you come back home after a long vacation, what's gonna happen to your yard? It will have over, overgrown, right? Dasha, dasha at work. This world on its own 
just keeps growing, just keeps blooming. Why? Why did God make it that way? Ah, so we can get in on it, right? And so there is this dynamic quality to creation. And the reason it's important is because a lot of times when we think back to Genesis 1, we think, oh, if only we could get back to Eden, right? If only we could get this world back to the garden. But God never said it is perfect. He never looked at creation and said, that's exactly how I want it forever and ever, amen. He looked at it and said, that's very good, and it's going somewhere. And he said, I made all of this, and tomorrow gets to be different because now you get to do something with all of this. I made this world, and now I'm going to give the, the, the creation ability to keep on deshawing, right? And so creation then becomes personal because God has made this world that keeps making a world. And if so, what you need is someone to steward that world. And so God said, let us make humankind out of our own image. I mean, first of all, who does that, right? If I was God, I would have made subservient slave type of machines that do all the work for me. But God says out of the overflow of love, I wanna make more of things like me. And the divine spark, the imago Dei, the image of God is loaded into you. And God says, I've given you this whole thing, now go do something with it. You are made in the image of God. God does lots of good things, but the one time he says it is very good is after he makes humans and he makes them in his image, and he breathes his life-giving spirit into them. And so one of the dangers we need to watch out for is whenever we start depersonalizing or impersonalizing or dehumanizing, because right from the start, what God says is very good is the divine spark of humans with personal names put in personal places, given personal stories, right? And we tend to live in the abstractions. Oh, those people are like that. Oh, all those people think that way. No, no, no. Get back to the named person in front of you made in the spark and image of God. And so, humans placed in the middle of the garden that is going somewhere, and because it's going somewhere, they've got work to do, right? Because they can't leave the garden alone for two months any more than I can leave my yard alone for two months. They've got work to do. And God makes them as co-creators. Think about that. Again, he did not need to do that, but instead he says, I am making you a co-creator. And from the start, what we notice is that there's this dual role to the human being. They are kings, right? In Genesis 1, they are told, subdue the earth, rule it, steward it have dominion over it, lead it. And then in Genesis 2, we get different imagery, which is really fascinating. A lot of great work done on the differences between Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 2, they are given the ability to tend it, to name it, to care for it, this sort of uh, coming alongside it kind of image. And so what we find is that leading and subduing and stewarding and tending and caring and naming and shaping and dreaming, all these things are made up of what it is to be a human, Adam names the animals and the plants, and he gives them personal names. Oh, that's a tiger, or whatever he called tigers, I don't know. You know, that's a dinosaur, run for my life, uh, and, and all of these things. And so there's the king side of what it means to be a human, and then there's the priest side. They are made in the image of God to mirror God to creation, and then to mirror creation's praises back to God. 
And so humans stand in the middle, the creator, the human, the creation. And if you keep that order right, creation is good and very good. So what happens here, and we'll talk a lot more about this next week, there is a harmony within hierarchy. God, the person, creation. When we get the order mixed up, all manner of things start to go wrong. But for now, what we've got is God making people in his image and a creation that they can care for, and creation itself is singing worship songs back to God through its own existence, and the people mirror that back to God, kings and priests. This, God says, is very good. This is shalom, peace, right, wholeness. Everything is blessed and good and holy within that harmony so long as they keep the hierarchy in place. Now, I want to pull back and notice that whatever it is that you love about life, it's already here in this picture. It's already here. Beauty, yeah, it's here. Art, aesthetics, uh, organization, exploration, recreation, leadership, stewardship, worship, it's all in this picture. Have you ever had a moment that's like, I was created to do this? Yeah, you were, exactly. It's the right thing to say. You were literally crafted to do that thing. You were literally, it's like I could do this forever. I could lose track of time doing this. Well, that's, that's what eternity's all about, right? Of course, of course you feel that way. If you love business, what is business other than the stewardship of the things of this world for the sake of the common good? Well understood, right? And so, listen, it doesn't need to be a worship service constantly. There are what we might call secular things baked into Genesis 1 that God calls very, very good. If you're interested in caring for those who are hungry and you're concerned about those who need more clean water, well, of course, because baked into creation is the right ordering of this thing for the sake of the flourishing of God's good world. If you're passionate for the rights of others, well, of course you are, because in the image of God, he made them, right? So of course you care about human justice. Of course you care about the flourishing of all people. Learning and leading and gardening and parenting and educating and naming and nurturing, it's all here working with wood, working with the land, working with a child. It's all here in this image. All of these impulses are blessed and good vocations, and the reason why they are is because everything is blessed and good. There is nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 that is not blessed and good, and that's the way God created it to be Think about that word blessing. God, it says in Genesis 1, 28, I believe, and God blessed it. Powerful word. He speaks a word of blessing and commissioning. In the image of God, he made them. God blessed them. God saw that it was very good. God hallows the days. He makes them holy. This is a place where everything is gift and everything is good. Now here's a question. What do we call the place where everything is good and as it should be and God is with us? What do we call that place? Heaven, right? 
And so what we find is God is here. There is no somewhere else in Genesis 1 and 2. This is how God created the world, that we would be with him. He walks with us in the cool of the day, and it shouldn't surprise us that there is no somewhere else to go when we die. A, because there's no somewhere else, and B, we don't die, right? That's how it is. Soil and spirit, sacred and secular, heaven and earth, it's all the same. There is no other place to evacuate to. One of the challenges in last hundred years of theology is we've built this big idea that we gotta get out of this bad place to get to a better place. Genesis 1 and 2 won't have any of it. God blessed this place, and this is where our story begins. Where does the story end? If that's act one, what is act five? Let's jump there for a minute. The story started in creation and it ends in recreation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So what we have here is once again, flowing out of heaven and into earth is the overflow of God's love for the flourishing of the world, and God makes all things new. We get this city here, this intimate new creation, and if you go to the, the next one for me, what we find is, is this city, it has a river. The river has water of life. It's flowing into the city, and from there, the water feeds a tree of life, which has fruit in it, and the fruit is for the healing of the nations. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, the phrase, the nations, is representative of anything that is not in right relationship with God. And so what we get here is the fruit is for the healing of all that which is opposed or in wrong relationship with God. God is on the move to create again. The creator is creating again. He says, behold, I make all things new. There is no more sin, there is no more death. Why is there no more sin or death, these great enemies of God's story? Because there's no more curse. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. That's jumping ahead to our story, we'll get there next week. But we all know about the curse of Genesis 3, but the curse is undone and death will be no more and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. See, I am making all things new. And the people then, what do the people look like? They are mirroring and imaging God. If you go to the next one for me, it says, his servants will offer God service, worshiping. They'll look on his face. Their foreheads will what? Mirror God. So here they are again, recreated now in the image of God, mirroring God to creation and mirroring creation's praises back to God. It is personal again. And it is participatory again. And they are a kingdom of priests. And they will rule with him age after age after age. And so recreation is personal in the image of God. It is participatory as kings and priests. And so they're given work to do again. I think honestly, if we talk about heaven, heaven can become something that sounds really boring a lot of times. Like, have you ever, like, really thought about what it would be like to, like, just sing worship songs forever? <laughs> Let me have you go home today and put on Bethel on Spotify shuffle 
and just hang in there for the next three weeks after that, right? I mean, it'll be, you'll have some highlights, you'll have some good moments, I'm sure, but after a while, you'll be like, I just wanna go like plant a garden or like go take a walk, right? Well, why? Because we're created to, to, the way we worship is to get in on creation, to get in on God's good creation. And so all of these good impulses will continue on and on and on, world without end. If you notice, everything is the same in Act 5 as it was in Act 1, except that we had a garden and now we have a city. Well, what is a city other than a collection of well-ordered gardens? And so we're given the impulse, do something with my creation, and, and it starts to be well-stewarded and creatively tended, and there's proper harmony within hierarchy. And then when that garden starts to dasha, starts to sprout, starts to grow, the garden's going to become a city. And then God is with us. It's all in this picture, blessed and good and holy. Blessed and good and holy. The action is here. Uh, God is with them. There is no somewhere else, right? Let's look at what it says here in the next one. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the home of God is among mortals. He will be with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. And so at the end of the story, there is no somewhere else to go. The sacred, the secular, the earth, the heaven, it's all wed together. It's all united, and God is with us. Does any of that sound familiar, right? Bell has this joke that if you took sin out of the Bible, what you'd have is a pamphlet. <laughs> because Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 essentially say the same thing. And what do we see? God is actively at work to make creation all he intended it to be. And God's not giving up on his creation project. If we uh, look in uh, Matthew, sorry, Tony, I'm jumping around a little bit, but if you go to the one with the, the all things, yes, God is not giving up on his good creation project. Look at what the New Testament bears witness to, that God will renew all things, restore all things, reconcile all things, and make all things new. That is a good story. That is such a good story that our tendency is to find ways to say, yeah, but it couldn't possibly be that good, right? And we find ways to boil it down, to, to minimize it, to exclude, right? But God is at work to heal all that he created and to set all things right again. Do you remember how creation had a rhythm to it, an intentional sequence to it? And so it should not surprise us, if you go back to the one you were on a second ago, that what we find is that creation is Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation is Revelation 2, 1, and 2, 2, right? It's like the, the intentional structuring of this. If the fall happens in Genesis 3, but eternity goes on forever, what's eternity? It's Revelation 2, 3, right? It's the setting right of all that has gone wrong in the story, world without end. And so, we know that's not the whole story. We don't have the pamphlet. We have this giant book. We gotta get to the rest of it. The rest of it matters, and we will. We'll start on that next week. Uh, but for now, for today, I just wanna beckon us to dream about the beginning and the end. 
Like, let it capture your imagination that God created a world like this. If we take this story to be true, let it be as good as it is and as hopeful as it is because in the beginning God created and it was good and in the end all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things in heaven and on earth shall be well. God is going to set things right again. Let's dream about that. We're gonna see in time that Jesus does this. Jesus does that. And so we set all our hopes on the cross. What he does on the cross is he makes peace with God's creation. It's a peacemaking act on God's part, God's initiative to set all things right by absorbing the great enemies of the story, sin and death, into God's own person. What God does is he takes them into the grave and he leaves them there so that we can move back to the healing of the nations. And we'll get to that. He does this so that things might be set right again. And so, uh, here's what I wanna invite us into. The, our role is to live in between these times. Yeah. And our role is to say, okay, God, here I am. I may never have been, but I am. What do I do to participate, to get in on, to be a part of this creation and to anticipate that it will be set right again. And so as our kids come in, and it's fine to let the kids come in, I know I'm going a little long, I wanna give some last words. Uh, and these are, these are Bell's words, but I think they're a great place to land this plane for now. A Christian then, remember that's how we started. What's a Christian? A Christian then is one who continually insists that through the resurrection of Jesus, a whole new world is bursting forth right in the midst of this one, and everyone everywhere can be a part of it. A Christian then is learning more and more how to see and live in this new creation in their own time and place. They get a glimpse of what God is doing and our prayer becomes, start with me, God. All the things you wanna do in Revelation 21 and 22, start with those things in my life, which means get me back into right relationship with you. Give me creation work to do. Give me kingdom and priest kind of work to do and let me live my life doing those things. A Christian then has hope rooted not in escape, but engagement. Not in evacuation, but reclamation. Not in leaving, but in staying and overcoming. And finally, a Christian then is never surprised when grace, beauty, meaning, order, compassion, truth, and love show up in all kinds of unexpected places and people because it is God's good world, it always has been God's good world, and it always will be God's good world. Amen. 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 That is a story we're celebrating.